coexistence is really the key to so much of conservation these days because we live on a very um, you know, busy and crowded planet when it comes to humans. And uh, we really, really do need to learn how to coexist with the diversity of life around us. to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Paula McKay, a writer and a conservation researcher. Paula has studied wild carnivores for the past two decades and is currently affiliated with the Living Northwest Program in Seattle's Woodland Park Zoo. She earned an MFA in creative writing from Pacific Lutheran University in 2015 and served as managing editor for the edited text, Non-Invasive Survey Methods in Carnivores with Island Press. Her work has been published in Deep Wild, Wild Hope, Earth Island Journal, and numerous other journals, magazines, books, and anthologies. A central part of Paula's research is the practice of non-capture, opting to use cameras in the wild rather than more invasive practices like trapping. At the heart of Paula's vision and mission is rewilding, doing what she can with her research and writing to support the restoration of natural processes and species, then stepping back so nature can express its own will. Paula lives on an island near Seattle with her husband and more-than-human dog in the company of elder trees. Today, we talk about the why and how of being in deep relation with the wilderness, within and around us. Hi, Paula. Welcome to How It Looks From Here. I'm so glad you can join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited that we're able to have this conversation. Yeah, I just, I I think that the focus that you have and the way you bring your life to your work is something that's going to be really interesting to our listeners. Um, you know, the title of this podcast is How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. And so my first question to you is, right now, how does the world look to you? Yes. Well, gosh, there's so much to hold right now, isn't there? Um, you know, on one hand, I feel like we can find bad news, horrible news, wherever we look. And it's hard not to look because I think it's in our nature to want to know what's going on in the world around us. But on the other hand, I'm looking out my window here at the, the trees and the, the forest where I live and we know that wild nature is resilient, just like we are, or we strive to be. Um, so this is where I feel like we can find inspiration and wild hope. 
Um, some of the species I work with in conservation in the Cascades, like wolverines, Canada lynx, and wolves, are rewilding this landscape despite the challenges we pose for them. But so much hinges on our willingness to coexist with them. So I feel like hope might be our fuel, but what we need is vision and commitment to keep conservation, conservation moving forward. So I guess, you know, in short, I feel like there, there are a whole mix of feelings going on about where we are right now. And sure. I try to ground myself in the positive so that we can keep moving forward. Well, I know that you're a wildlife researcher and that you've followed two very strong strands in your career, one of them conservation and the other writing. How did you get to each of those and how do they weave together? Yes, well, I feel like I've lived a bit of a, a hybrid career for most of my adult life, actually. Um, I began working in the conservation side of things uh, way back when I was in my early 20s. I was a Greenpeace activist and I had come to that with a real passion for wildlife and for animals. At one point, I thought I would become a veterinarian and um, I worked as a vet tech in high school. But I also came to realize that there are some very hard parts of, of doing that kind of work with animals. And most of those have to do with the people who care for them. So I ended up you know, becoming an activist, but then always feeling drawn to the biological side of, of that work. And immediately after Greenpeace, I became involved in whale research with the New England Aquarium as a, um, a wildlife photographer on a research vessel as a volunteer stint. And I gradually worked my way back into studying wildlife. Um, I worked in conservation through a group then called the Wildlands Project. Um, and so much of that focus was on this idea of rewilding, which we'll probably talk about later. Um, but meanwhile, writing and communication were always really important to me too. I, I was always a solid writer in school and I was encouraged by English teachers when I was young who recognized that I was an introvert but I really felt like I had something I needed to say. And um, in 10th grade, I, I wrote an essay about um, uh, beauty, which juxtaposed my mother's um, losing her hair from cancer treatment with the pressures I felt as a teenage girl to keep, you know, focused on my looks. And um, that essay really concretize something for me. Um, and yeah, so throughout my life, I have tried to integrate writing with conservation so that I can try to move people, move readers, move myself um, with written words, as well as with science and data and everything else we need in conservation. So, so this, the writing thing you felt from when you were very, very young, and the conservation thing, it seems like same. Where was it that you were, were raised? What kind of land were you raised on? 
Interestingly, I was raised for the first 10 years in the city of Boston. And nature had a very, very different context for me there, of course. Um, I, I have very distinct memories of watching squirrels on the busy street in front of us and playing with ants in the driveway. Um, of course, we, we had always had a dog um, who, you know, was a major connection to me with the idea of otherness. Um, but I didn't have the wild landscapes around me that I came to have around me later in life. Um, we moved to suburban Boston when I was um, 10 years old, and there we had a woodlot where I would spend a lot of time just walking in the little forest and exploring the stream. Um, so I always felt drawn to the solace of nature, but it took me until I was in college, really, to be in what I would call a, a wilder place um, where I moved to Vermont um, for University of Vermont as a, as a college student. Yeah, and you really are a person who goes out there in, into wild nature. And, and you've written, Paula, about how honing your skill as a writer um, has required, the, and your quote is, probing the true meaning of wildness in yourself. What can you share with our listeners about the value and substance of that kind of inquiry? Yeah, boy, you know, I feel like when I talk about rewilding, I feel like that is such a personal as well as an ecological process. And what I mean by that is that basically rewilding is in some ways... Um, let me think about this for a moment. Um, I guess I would say rewilding. One one writer I recall um, defining it as a return to our essential nature, and um, it involves restoring the capacity for self determination, self will, um, one's identity, and from a personal perspective, I had a pretty difficult childhood, as I know many of us did. And um, I think I really felt cut off from the person that I was inside, the wild, free-willed person that I knew lived within myself somewhere. Um, and at the same time, the landscapes I study have also um, had their their self-will stolen from them. Um, you know, there's, there's a sense of many of these landscapes being um, denuded of their wildness in a lot of ways, their free will. And so when I, when I write about wildness, when I talk about wildness, I also feel like I'm probing that tension within myself, really trying to make it a process of self-discovery too, and what it means to really ground myself in who I am and who I want to be. Right. So you you said something earlier about I thank you for defining rewilding, um, and and maybe we can pursue that even further. You said something earlier about the the solace available. I think I got this right, Paula. You can check me on it. Um, the solace available to us humans 
in the recognition that we are the natural world and we're surrounded by mm -hmm. relatives. Or at least that's what I took. You know that Gary and I write about this in Full Ecology. But did I get that right or am I just putting my thoughts on your thoughts? <laughs> no, no, I do think that holds very true for me as well. Um, I had the the amazing opportunity to spend a bit of time around Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, the author, of course, of Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, this earlier this year at a conference in Alaska. And I am just so deeply moved by her writing and the terms that she's inviting us to use, like um, the more than human world or our wild kin, really speak to my heart. I mean, I've always felt like the non-human world are my kin. Um, and, you know, typically the human world tends to be pretty noisy. And when I'm in nature, I feel like so much of that noise quiets down for me and really allows me to think yeah. and explore. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, let's go back to the rewilding thing. How do you recognize... Uh, maybe there's there's two... We can figure this out together. Maybe there's two different questions. Um, what are you looking for in the rewilding of yourself or the rewilding of an ecosystem? And how do you recognize it when it's happening? Let's start with the ecosystem um, because that really speaks back to so much of my early experience in conservation. Um, Rewilding as a term was coined by Dave Foreman, who was um, the founder of Earth First and who later became one of the co-founders of the organization, the Wildlands Project. And um, it is a term very much informed by science as well. Uh, Michael Sule, who was one of the so-called fathers of the field of conservation biology, was very much engaged in this as well. And at the time where this was coined in the 1990s, we were talking about rewilding as a really comprehensive, um, typically large-scale conserva conservation effort focused on protecting core wilderness areas or wild areas, connecting those areas through habitat linkages, and then protecting interactive species or keystone species, and most often carnivores or the species we're talking about there. So that, that um, paradigm has very much framed so much of my work in conservation. Um, here in the Cascades, we have seen the return of almost all of our native carnivores, even since the time that I have lived in the, the state of Washington, which is um, you know over a decade now, but we've seen the, the return of wolves and wolverines, fishers were reintroduced um, in the last couple of years, um, and we're right now working to restore grizzly bears. Um, so what we see in this landscape is that we have this huge amount of land and wild habitat almost entirely public lands, the six million acre area we call the North Cascades ecosystem. But until you know, two decades ago, so many of the animals that, that sat at the kind of the top of the food chain or however we might wanna say that, have been um, lost because of human activity, persecution, um, a long history of 
of targeting these animals. So for, for me and for people working in this field, this landscape is really coming back to life because of the return of these species. We're starting to see a much more um, intact and therefore resilient landscape. Um, likewise, I, when I talk about rewilding myself, I think I am talking about resilience. Um, of course. You know, we, we, we live in a very challenging world when you work in conservation, you know, you know firsthand what the challenges are that, that the other animals face. Um, and, you know, it's just constantly probing oneself to look for your inner truth and, you know, what matters to you, how you want to walk in the world, where to put our limited capacity for energy. And for me, I know that I need to continue to try to help in the ways that I can. And that means constantly keeping in check my own um my own energy level, um, my boundaries, which aren't very good at times, um, you know, so really working with resilience. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I think one way of, of connecting these dots, the things that you're speaking about, I think can be immediately relevant to listeners who really want, well, I think we're all in this culture right now, mm, aware of it or not, we're looking for some guidance for how to deal with our climate anxiety right um, with our our difficulty with knowing how to be positive parts of a solution moving toward a solution so many of the things that you've said have helped with that I I do wonder if you would elaborate a bit pick a a, a carnivore and um, in fact I know you've written about wolverines mm-hmm. recently yes um, what what do conservation scientists see when um, when a, a keystone species is returned? What happens, and why is that a good thing? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, keystone species itself is you know is a bit of a complicated term and has a scientific basis. Um, I don't know that we would call wolverines a keystone species. So I think I can talk a little bit more broadly about why it's important to bring some of these animals back into our ecosystems. And if it's okay with you, I think I'll talk about current efforts toward grizzly bear recovery in the North Cascades. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you. Okay. Yes. So I think grizzly bears are pretty widely regarded as a keystone species. And when we do say that term, what we're talking about is animals or wildlife uh, species who play an oversized role in the ecosystems they inhabit. So in the case of grizzly bears, for example, um, in the North Cascades, these would be obviously uh, interior Grizzly, so not the brown bears who inhabit the, let's say, the, the coast of Alaska. Um, and they would be heavily reliant on vegetation for their, for their diet. Probably 80 to 90% of their diet would be vegetation and insects. And in consuming so much vegetation, so many berries and other plants, 
They are helping to distribute seeds from those plants all over the landscape, obviously through their waste. And at the same time, when they forage for bulbs and small mammals and roots, they're acting like rototillers on the landscape. Um, I know you're in Montana, you have probably seen firsthand areas where grizzly bears have been digging, and it does literally look like a rototiller has gone through the landscape. So what that means for, for the habitat they're living in is that they're aerating the soil, and in areas they inhabit in the, the mountains, like the alpine meadows and such, they're actually helping to keep those meadows open and playing a key role in maintaining the ecosystem as it should be. Um, so the current work to restore grizzly bears to the North Cascades has been happening for decades, honestly. I mean, the last grizzly bear to be confirmed here in this ecosystem was way back in 1996. And really by the turn of the last century, they had been um, persecuted almost entirely out of this landscape as they had been in most of the West between overhunting and um, fur trapping and widespread predator control campaigns um, with poison. They were mostly gone. And now, um, after many, many years of conservationists working to, to facilitate this process, um, we are in the middle of what's called an environmental impact statement process, mm -hmm. where the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Park Service have released a plan that would advocate for the recovery of grizzly bears in this ecosystem. And we have a 45-day comment period where the public can express their views on this and hopefully help move it forward. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. So, none of us can be grizzlies because we're not grizzlies, but we can learn from the the grizzly we can learn from uh, would you say that that is true are there lessons that we can learn from these really as as Kimmerer suggests Robin Wall Kimmerer suggests um, from all beings um, but watching the grizzly and what they do to to till the land and <laughs> consume so many insects um, are there things what do you see that we can learn from them Honestly, I think one of the greatest things that we can learn when we watch an animal like a grizzly bear is um, a deep sense of tolerance within ourselves. So grizzly bears, probably more than almost any other animal, evoke a pretty natural discomfort in human beings. They're, they're big animals. They're obviously... Um, capable of overpowering us and they 
are, um, you know, they they outsize us in in many ways, and so so they they bring up attention within us, and they certainly bring up attention within me. But at the same time, it's facing that reality that just because they bring up that tension doesn't mean they don't belong there, and in fact you know, the very fact that they're there enriches the places that, um, where they live and where we live. So it's kind of holding all that at once. And of course, this applies to other human beings as well. You know, there, there can be many divisive aspects to um, humans that can make us uncomfortable. And, and, and so it's a matter of of holding that otherness and embracing the fact that, okay, I might be a little bit uncomfortable here. There are things that I can do to keep myself safe and at the same time keep these others safe so that we can all coexist together. And I think coexistence is really the key to so much of conservation these days because we live on a very um, you know, busy and crowded planet when it comes to humans and uh, we really, really do need to learn how to coexist with the diversity of life around us. And and how, I love that term, coexistence, because it's not a new term, but how does that look? I mean, we, we all have these notions of, of a sort of utopian peace and happiness. Um, coexistence, I, I sometimes wonder if that's part of why it is important no matter where we are, whether we're in a urban setting or a rural setting, wherever we are, to go outside or at least look outside and consider our relation with everything that we see. And that's a, a quality of, or that seems to fit with coexistence. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like it may be a, a kind of baseline or a thread that that holds us in well, as our species in existence, uh, and prevents our our damaging ourselves and each other. Mm-hmm. What how what does that make you think? Mm. Yes, I feel like coexistence is such a powerful term, and um, in some ways, I feel like your question brings me back to our initial discussion about writing because this is where I feel like stories really allow us to imagine what it's like to be someone else, even if that someone else is in the form of a grizzly bear or a wolverine. Um, Because empathy encourages people to take action on behalf of others. And without it, I think it's really difficult to to feel the level of... um, compassion and motivation necessary to do what we need to do to coexist with others. And um, I live in a place where coyotes um, are coexisting with people. I live on an island near Seattle, and yet sometimes that can make people feel uncomfortable just because coyotes are who they are. You know, the... the, um, the realities of living among coyotes is that the risk is very, very low in terms of a dangerous encounter, almost zero. And yet there's something in us where we're walking down the street and we see this other 
being looking at us and we automatically think that's a threat. And Mm -hmm. so the coexistence um, process when it comes to coyotes and working in conservation is to really talk with people about why it is that a coyote might actually even be following you down the street, you know, talking about curiosity, talking about the fact that coyotes might have pups in a den nearby where you're walking. Sure. And that mom mom feels like it's her job to make sure that you keep moving on. Um, or that the dog who I love so much might actually be evoking some fear in the coyote on behalf of her pups. And so it's important to keep him on a leash when I'm walking where coyotes are clearly making a living. Um, So I feel like coexistence in this context is really a process of trying to more deeply understand the life that others are living and, um, and then working with one's own reactions and tolerance um, when, when we approach our own day-to-day lives. Well, that's lovely. Thank you. You know, um, you did quote Robin Wall Kimmerer in, in one, uh, maybe, I forget, maybe it was on your website. And we, of course, will put the link to that in the show notes for people to learn more about you. But you quoted her saying, the personhood of all beings. Mm. And that is just beautiful. And it seems to me that in your recent... Um, essay in the about place journal um you you were writing about wolverines the title is wolverines in a land of wildfire um in in that way you used a a a literary form i'm thinking that if i'm saying it right it's the abc darian essay form and i'm wondering if you could describe both the literary form why you chose it for telling the story, um, and and how it was able to support your conveying the story of entry into what was really fire scorched Wolverine country. Thanks. Yes. Um, so the Abbasidarian structure is one that was fairly new to me. I had I had seen some examples um, of that structure in a couple of publications and uh, actually took a class with a writer named um, Priscilla Long, who has real expertise in in this and many other forms. Um, So when I thought about writing this essay, um, again, probing the, um, the complexities around wolverines and wildfire, this form came to mind for me. And I think it's because I wanted to create a story that had many facets to it, almost, you know, like a crystal, I guess, where you as a reader um, were invited to look, look into the, the story from different angles that together created a synergy that I hoped brought um, Wolverines and my own journey as someone who studies them to life in a, a deeper way than um, sort of my uh, typical personal narrative. Um, and so when I started writing the piece, it really it really felt like writing a piece of music to me. Um, you know, it was it was like each section um, was talking to the other sections and 
Um, obviously, there's there's also the challenge of of working with a puzzle, right? Because your each section begins with a letter of the alphabet, and and so that needs to work. I was really fortunate to know that there is a wolverine in our ecosystem named Xena. So I had X all taken care of. (laughs) (laughs) That was lucky. lucky. Um, But I just loved it. I mean, it it really did in some ways not to um, minimize the work involved because it was an incredible amount of work. But it also felt like it was writing itself in some ways. And I I loved a comment um, from one of my colleagues at the Woodland Park Zoo recently where she said she felt like she was reading a painting ah. and um, I that was perfect that was perfect feedback for me because I did hope that um, that form would help kind of create a different level of um, visual for people as well. Well this is your passion to use your writing to um, fortify understandings of coexistence Mm-hmm. A capacity for empathy with other beings, be they animals or flora. Yes. Do I have that right? Um, yes. I mean, more of my writing is, is about animals and places and actually the people who study them as well. I, I do like to write about fellow um, biologists and conservationists. But um, yes, I, I feel like you've said it exactly as I would say it, that um, my my goal in writing, especially about uh, wild beings, is to try to evoke empathy and compassion on their behalf, and then action to protect them in the world that we currently live in. So here, and coming to the close of our time, what what would be um, a bit of advice that you would leave with our listeners who who are living in this time of climate change like we all are what what would you say i would say that imaginative empathy or imagining the lives of other beings is a really inspiring and positive place to ground oneself. Um, And sometimes, you know, you can just go out into a pretty busy area, you know, a lake in the city or a pond in the, the woods where you live and watch other forms of life at work and at play and realize that you hold all of those answers within yourself too. Um, You know, it can feel like you just don't know how to proceed with a given problem in your life or how to handle a family situation or whatever the challenge might be. And the whole sense of, of, um, of how to approach those problems can change with a little bit of immersion, immersion, in wild nature. And I personally find that I really need that um, to come back to my own life, to come back to my desk, um, and to feel like I know how to live in a world that can really be pretty overwhelming at times. Um, you know, mm. again, I feel like hope is is certainly 
part of the answer, but it falls a little flat unless you're willing and able to take it somewhere, um, you know, because it can also imply you just want things to be different. But it's like, how do we get there? And um, I feel like nature has everything within it, within us um, to move forward. And we just need to learn how to quiet so much of the human noise and look to those lessons for how we can, um, you know, how we can thrive in our own lives. Yeah, beautiful. It's I, this notion that you work with so closely and you hold so dear of rewilding one of the things that I feel like I'm, I'm noticing about that as you speak is that it is not t- extracting humans from the wild. Right. It's humans as a part of, of the wildness r- recovering our own truest nature. Would that seem right? Yes, uh, for sure. At the same time, I, I, I do feel like... Um, we need to learn how to better minimize our own footprint as a species. I, I do here. feel like, um, you know, um, national parks are absolutely vital, for example, to the survival of so many um, species in North America, um, wilderness areas, etc. But, um, you know, just like coyotes, um, people are not going away. And here, here for both of those <laughs> situations. I mean, you know, I, I feel like um, not only are we part of the story, but I mean, we're a huge part of the story now. And obviously, we're no different than any other animal in the landscape in that we're just all trying to survive. And um you know, the more we recognize that that's true of other forms of life as well, the more we can realize we really truly are all in this together. And there is no way to not be in this together. Um, and yeah, so so seeing ourselves as part of the narrative seems really key to me. Oh, thank you, Paula. This is really wonderful. Thank you for your time. Yeah, it's been wonderful to have you on How It Looks From Here. You can learn more about Paula by visiting her website, paulamckay.com. That's P-A-U-L-A. M-A-C-K-A-Y dot com. Spend some time with her published essays and with her blog, Wild Prose. Check out her writing on rewilding, wolverines, grizzlies, and urban mammals, among many more. We'll leave the links in the show notes. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson and available in bookstores everywhere. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. 
How It Looks From Here is an educational project of full ecology. How It Looks From Here is produced by me, Mary Claire, editing by Gary Ferguson, music by Gary Ferguson, and other artists noted in the show notes. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch. Mm-hmm.